you get a treat today. I'm going to preach two sermons today. So we're going to talk about the Lord about baptism. We're going to come back a little bit later talk about the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're following along in uh, the Baptist Faith and Message, we are kind of mixing a few of these up here over the next few weeks. And one of the reasons is that last week we talked about salvation. Well, baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs and symbols of our salvation. Uh, they're like, as Matt said, it's like we're acting out a parable. It's like we're using all of our senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, to experience and remember and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And both of these ordinances not only help us remember the past, but they help us anticipate what is yet to come when Jesus Christ returns. Now, I want to define a term here that Matt and I both used, and that's the word ordinance. We call baptism, Lord's Supper, ordinances. Why is that? What What is an ordinance? Well, ordinance is like a command. It's a directive. It's a decree. You know, cities can have ordinances. Neighborhoods can have ordinances, rules about things you, you can and you can't do. Well, the, of, of all the different ways in which we worship, of all the special things we might do in a church, only two were commanded by Jesus Christ for the church in all time and all places to use to declare our faith, to affirm our faith, and proclaim the gospel, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some denominations throw in other things, though, like washing feet, uh, things like that. But, but really, there are only two that Jesus commanded the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are mentioned in all four Gospels. They're mentioned in Paul's writings. Time and time again, they are demonstrated, they are commanded, they are clarified for us to do uh, as a demonstration of worship and a proclamation of our faith. Now, some denominations will call these sacraments. We as Baptists don't call them sacraments because when you say it's a sacrament, that implies that by partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper or by being baptized, you are somehow receiving more grace from God, that that these things impart grace to you. Uh, And we don't believe that they do. God gives you all the grace that you need when you come to Him in faith uh, to Jesus Christ. He bestows all of His grace upon you. In that moment, some denominations will even go so far as to say that baptism or observing the Lord's Supper are requirements for salvation. But if that's true, then we're not saved by grace through faith. We are saved by works and of ourselves. And it's not a gift from God. So we know that these things are not necessary for salvation. And so Baptists have historically and rightly held that the Lord's Supper and baptism are commanded by Jesus to be pictures of the gospel and affirmations of our salvation by God's grace through faith. And so for us to be a New Testament church means we must be obedient to Christ in observing these ordinances. To be a Christian who's living in obedience to Christ means that you need to follow Him in believer's baptism and whenever possible regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. So let's focus on baptism first and foremost. Now, I like to use this illustration when I'm talking to people about baptism. When Julia and I got married, we stood publicly in front of our family and friends, we made our vows to one another, and we exchanged wedding rings. Now, we could have gotten married privately in a little ceremony in a judge's office. We could have chosen not to wear wedding rings, and we would still be married. But we wanted to publicly proclaim our love and commitment to one another, and we wanted to demonstrate to people with a symbol 
that we belong to one another. Now, if I take off this ring, if I'm working on something, I'm doing something, I don't want this ring on in that moment, I can take it off and lay it down. Am I still married to Julia? Yes, because the ring isn't what marries us. It's our commitment, our vows to one another before God and others. Well, the same is true of baptism. Baptism, like a wedding ring, is a symbol of a commitment you've already made, of a relationship you've already established with Jesus Christ, and it's one that you make publicly, in front of people, proudly declaring your love for Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. Now, baptism has its roots in an ancient Jewish practice of ritual bathing for symbolic purification, and they would go down into pools that looked kind of like baptistries. They were called mikvah, and they are all over Israel. John the Baptist took this practice, and he expanded it to include anyone who was willing to repent, to turn from their sin, and seek to live in God's ways. And so Jesus, we see, at the beginning of his ministry, comes to John for this kind of a, 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 a purification ritual. He comes to John to, to be baptized, not because Jesus needed to be cleansed from any sins, not that Jesus needed to be purified in any way, but he came to give this even a deeper meaning. He came to do this as an example for us, to, to foreshadow his ministry to die and be buried and to be raised from the grave. The word baptize and baptism combined occur exactly 100 times in the New Testament. And so it's an important ordinance for the church. Jesus did it. Jesus commanded it. It's all through the New Testament, and it's, it's kind of in our name, isn't it? We're Baptists, right? So it's kind of important. So let's look at what the Baptist faith and message has to say about baptism. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony of his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. So let's look at a few things the Bible has to tell us about baptism and why it matters. First, through baptism, we publicly declare our faith in Jesus. We publicly declare our faith in Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that if we acknowledge Him before others, He will acknowledge us before the Father. It's important that we publicly acknowledge our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so baptism is that public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in Baptist churches and in other churches around the country, there's this modern development where, and we'll do it today, right at the end of the service, I'll come and I'll stand down here. We'll all stand up and sing and people will come down front to make a decision, right? We call it the invitation, right, or the hymn of decision. This is a modern development. Nowhere in the New Testament will you ever see the church standing up singing a hymn with the preacher standing down front. It doesn't happen. This is the beginning of our profession of faith, but the biblical way in which we publicly profess our faith is through the waters of baptism. And that could be in a baptistry, it could be in a swimming pool, it could be in a pond, a creek, the ocean, a watering trough, whatever. It is going through those waters of baptism where we publicly declare our faith. Number two, baptism is an act of obedience. If someone is to be a true follower of Christ, they should desire 
to be obedient to Jesus. And Jesus commanded baptism. John, 1 John 2, 3 tells us that we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. So being a, a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, means you should want to be obedient. And in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus commanded us to go make disciples of all nations and do what with every one of those disciples? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't an add-on. This isn't a, it would be nice. It's not a bonus. This is a command for every follower of Jesus Christ. Number three, in the New Testament, all new believers are baptized in the body of Christ. Every time someone comes to faith in Christ. We see on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.41, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people baptized on one day. Can you imagine? Of course, if you've ever been and if you ever get to go to Jerusalem, they have discovered all around in Jerusalem and around the temple dozens if not hundreds of these mikvot. And they are just everywhere because you had all these masses of people coming to the temple. They were all getting uh, these ritual purifications. So it's, it's completely feasible to think about 3,000 people utilizing all of those, getting baptized in one day. When Philip led Samaritans to faith in Jesus, you know what he did? He baptized them. When Peter led Cornelius and his household, the first Gentiles, to faith in Jesus, you know what he did? He baptized them. When Philip found this Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot and explained Jesus to him and he professed his faith in Christ, you know what they did? They stopped and he was baptized in a puddle in a ditch on the side of the road. There is no excuse in the New Testament for someone not to get baptized, even if it means in a muddy puddle in a ditch. And we've got this nice baptistry with the nice clean city of Thompson water. <laughs> so we have no excuse for not being baptized. The fourth thing I want us to look at is that baptism symbolizes three things. First, it symbolizes what Jesus did for you through the cross and the resurrection, right? Jesus died for your sins. He was buried in that grave. Three days later, he rose from the grave. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Baptism depicts that. You are proclaiming that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the grave. But secondly, it symbolizes what has happened to you through God's grace and your faith. You died to an old way of life. You were buried with Christ, and you have risen to walk in newness of life, to walk as a new creation in the way of Christ Jesus. And that is beautifully demonstrated through baptism. Paul even says this in Romans 6. He says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized unto His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life as new creations in Christ Jesus. So baptism is a way of proclaiming what Jesus did for you, what, what has happened to you personally in your life, and number three, what will happen when Jesus comes back again. Because all of us, unless Christ returns before that moment, all of us will die. We'll be laid to rest. Somehow, somewhere, some way. We'll be buried. But when Jesus Christ returns, we will be raised with new resurrection bodies to live forever in a new heaven 
and a new earth. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we believe that Jesus died, rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, this is why we as Baptists believe that immersion is the best and preferred method of baptism. Because only by going down into the water and coming back out can we really depict these three symbols. That Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. That we die to our sins, we're buried, hidden with Christ, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. And that someday, even though we may die and be buried, Jesus will come and raise us from the, from the dead. I'm sorry, but sprinkling doesn't quite communicate that. It's immersion. Not to mention even that the Greek word, baptizo, where, you know, when the, when the Bible's translated into English, they didn't really translate that word. They transliterated that word. They just made up an English word. We'll just call it baptize. But the Greek word baptizo always means to dip, to plunge, to put under the water. In fact, in every extra biblical occurrence of that Greek word, whether it was a sinking ship or somebody doing the dishes or the laundry, baptizo always means to put under the water. And that's why we baptize by immersion. So in summary, baptism involves four things. First, it involves the right person, a believer in Jesus Christ. Now listen, maybe you were baptized as an infant. Some, children, some churches practice infant baptism. Were you a believer in Jesus Christ as an infant? No, you were not. We believe that baptism is an outward expression of an inward change, of a conscious decision that you made to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit convicted you. He drew you in faith. You responded. You became a Christian. That is the condition under which you should be baptized. You've professed your faith. It's not after you're born that you're baptized. It's after you're born again that you're baptized. Secondly, the right reasons. It kind of goes hand in hand. You are baptized for obedience and the declaration of your faith. Baptism does not save you. There is nothing magical or special about City of Thompson water, even if it's in this, this baptistry up here. It's just water. It doesn't wash your sins away. We are baptized as an act of obedience, as a public demonstration of outwardly of something that's already happened to us inwardly. It's not about salvation. It's about bearing witness. It's about proclaiming to other people what Jesus has already done in your life. So it's the right person for the right reasons, with the right method, immersion, we've already talked about that, and the right authority, a local New Testament church. Now, as our instrumentalists come back up, we're going to continue worshiping. Throughout the book of Acts, whenever someone was baptized, it was always for two things. It was to publicly profess and demonstrate their allegiance to Jesus Christ, but also, secondly, their identification with His bride, with the church. And so, when we are baptized, we are baptized into a local New Testament family of faith where we are going to worship and serve and grow. We had two last week come to profess their faith, and they're going to be doing that through baptism on Palm Sunday. Is that right? I think that's right. Palm Sunday. So on Palm Sunday, we're going to have baptisms. If you have never been baptized because you've already placed your faith in Jesus, and you now know, I need to be obedient, I need to go through those waters of baptism to publicly profess my faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you, and we have our invitation here at the end of the service to come and say, David, 
I know I'm a, I'm, I'm a Christian. I know I believe in Jesus. I need to be obedient and be baptized. We would love to receive you through baptism. But we're going to stand together. No, we're going to sit. The choir's going to sing. And we're going to continue with the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Well, the second ordinance of the church is just as important as baptism. It's another way for us to, to demonstrate the gospel, another way for us to proclaim our faith and obey the commands of Christ. Baptism is an ordinance that we experience once. It's that one-time public profession of our faith in Jesus Christ, but it unites us and unifies us as members of this church. Every member of this church comes, whether through these, this baptistry or another, we come together through the waters of baptism but the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that we can partake of time and time and time again. In fact, the Bible doesn't give us any prescription of how often we do it. Jesus just said, whenever you do this. So we, you know, we as a church do it quarterly in our morning worship service, but there are other special times throughout the year. Some churches do it every fifth Sunday. Some churches do it once a month. Some churches do it every Sunday. And all of that is perfectly fine. Let's look at what the Baptist faith and message says about the Lord's Supper. It is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. I do have to say how judicious they are that they call it the fruit of the vine. Uh, they don't say wine or juice because, again, that's different from church to church. But either way, it's the fruit of the vine. Of course, we prefer Welch's here, but uh, that's... Uh, Acts 2, they did not drink Welch's in the early church. Acts 2 shows us how the earliest gatherings of the church centered around this, the common meal, the breaking of bread. Look at Acts 2.42. We already looked at, at the first part of that where they were baptized, 3,000 that day, but then they go on. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they came together for the preaching and teaching of the word, fellowship with one another, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. That breaking of the bread they're talking about is that common meal, the Lord's Supper. Now, they would gather for a meal together, and then at the end of that meal, much as a Passover Seder was, at the end of the meal, you then would have this special time of meaning, but they, they participated in that together. The Lord's Supper, like baptism, is a symbolic act. We don't believe that the bread and the cup are literally or in some way transformed to become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. Rather, we understand they are symbolic elements that remind us that Jesus lived, that He was flesh and blood, and that He sacrificed His body. He poured out His blood on the cross as the penal substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sins. And rather than believing that Jesus is present in the elements, some denominations will say even that, well, he's not physically present in the elements, but he's spiritually present in the elements. We don't even say that. Yes, Jesus is present when we participate in the Lord's Supper, but he's not present in the bread or the juice. He's present in you and me. He's present in this body, the body of Christ, the church. And so he is present, but it is in us, not in the elements. As Jesus said when He instituted the Lord's Supper, we do this in remembrance of Him. And as Paul would later write, and we heard this morning read in a New Testament reading, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So while the Lord's Supper is a remembrance 
of the death of Christ for the remission of our sins. And it is a proclamation that Jesus died and was risen from the dead. It's also an anticipation of His return and the marriage feast of the Lamb that we will celebrate together. But the Lord's Supper is also a symbol of Christian unity. And I want to focus on that. I want to, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, let's talk about how it reminds us of who we are as a saved people, as the gathered body of Christ, baptized believers coming together. And the first thing it tells us is the church is a community unified in Christ. We are a community unified in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, he's saying that the Lord's Supper is, a, is participatory. We are, we are remembering in an active way what Jesus has done for us. And he goes on to say, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So in the New Testament, that, in the early church, that one loaf was a metaphor for the oneness of the body of Christ. Now, we don't use one loaf, but we, use, we, we share off one table at the same time. We eat, we drink. We don't serve ourselves, but we serve one another. That's one of the the beautiful symbolisms of the Lord's Supper. We've missed this COVID season as we've used those horrible, awful little packets, right? Uh, We don't get to experience that passing of the plate, serving one another in the Lord's Supper. The common bread and the common cup are to remind us of the common life we share in Christ. This is why we call... Uh, the Lord's Supper sometimes communion. It's not that we are so much communing with God in that. It's that we are communing together with God. You and I commune with one another in the presence of God. It, it's both a vertical but also a horizontal experience. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of the church, not just of individual Christians. And if you divorce either of those from the gathered body of Christ they lose some of their meaning and some of their significance. Now, does that mean that you can't remember the body and blood of Jesus on your own? No, that's not what that means. But to experience the fullness of what the Lord's Supper means, we need to do it together. We need to experience it with one another. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul rebuked the Corinthian Christians for their lack of unity, for their lack of togetherness. They were guilty of approaching this act of worship with a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. It was all about them. They had no consideration for the needs of others. They weren't concerned with helping anybody else connect with God in worship. It was all about them. And they were actually using the Lord's Supper to fill their bellies, not their hearts. They were gorging themselves on the Lord's Supper. They were getting drunk on the wine. They were not participating in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, had some very harsh words for them about this. Now, we may not get drunk or overeat on the Lord's Supper here. And let's be honest, it's kind of hard to get drunk on that Welch's grape juice. You've got to drink a lot of that to get drunk. It's kind of hard to gorge ourselves on on those little crackers, isn't it? But maybe we are guilty of the same attitude when it comes to other parts of our worship. We come to worship to get fed. I, I hear people say, well, you know, I, I, did, I wasn't getting fed. I, I need to be fed. We, we look at it as it's about me being fed spiritually, and I'm not really thinking about whether others are being fed spiritually. 
or whether God would have me to be the one doing the feeding for them or feeding myself. We get drunk on emotional experiences and sentimentalism while others around us are spiritually thirsty. When I was in Israel, I was struck by something at a place called Tagba, which means seven springs. And this is a traditional site. In other words, there's no archaeological evidence of it, but it's the traditional site of where Jesus fed the 5,000. Where he took the loaves and the fishes and miraculously multiplied and fed those people. Now, about a hundred yards away from this, on the, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, is another place that's traditionally where Jesus baked some fish for breakfast after his resurrection. And Peter and some of the other disciples had gone back to fishing. They were out in the, in the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and, and Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side. They fished all night, couldn't catch anything, and they did. And it was another second miraculous catch of fish, and Peter went, that's Jesus. And so he dove off the boat and swam ashore, and Jesus had made breakfast for them. Uh, and he had cooked up these fish. And it was there that Jesus confronted Peter and asked him three times, Do you love me? And three times Peter said, You know I love you. And three times Jesus told him, Feed my sheep. Now it struck me that here at the same place was a place where people were fed by Jesus and where Jesus challenged someone to feed people. That's the way we should approach worship. Not just the Lord's Supper, but any time we come to worship, it's not just about me being fed. It's about me being fed so that I can then feed others. We are called to be fed and to feed, to be cared for and to care for others. Are we doing that? Are we going out and feeding others with the truth of the gospel of God's love? So that's the first thing. The second thing, the church is a selfless and generous community. Paul gave warnings and instructions to the Corinthians. I'm going to pick up where our New Testament scripture left off at verse 27. Paul says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Paul is clear that we must consider others before ourselves as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Even in how we observe the ordinance, we are to be selfless and generous. Again, that's why we serve each other the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us not to eat of this supper in an unworthy manner. And we take that to mean that we should make sure that we are right with God. We've confessed our sins. We don't harbor any bitterness towards someone else before we partake of those elements. What we fail to understand is the sin that God is most concerned about within the church are sins of self-centeredness. That's what breaks the heart of God. It's me failing to emphasize being in a right relationship with other believers to think that I can come before God and partake of His Lord's Supper while I'm harboring unforgiveness in my heart. I'm putting my needs, wants, and preferences ahead of others. That's what God is grievous about. When we eat this bread and drink this cup with hearts that are hardened, 
toward other people, we are guilty of sinning against the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean the bread. That means the church. We are sinning against one another when we do this. Are you eating and drinking without recognizing the body of Christ around you? Are you examining yourself or are you bringing judgment on yourself? Third, the church is a restoring and reconciling community. So the bread symbolizes restoration. You think about it, Isaiah prophesied that by his stripes we would be healed. Jesus was broken that you and I could be made whole. He was beaten and bruised so that our scars could be erased. He wept tears so that ours could be dried. And as His hands and feet in the world, we continue His mission to heal and to restore a broken world. We become agents of reconciliation and restoration. So the bread reminds us of restoration, that He was broken that we could be made whole. The cup symbolizes reconciliation. Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when we drink this cup... It reminds us of our forgiveness. And whenever we experience forgiveness, Jesus said we should always, always, hand in hand with that, think about, am I forgiving others? As I ask God to forgive me, I must be willing to forgive other people. As I receive, so I give. We can't be a forgiven people if we're not willing to be a forgiving people. So the Lord's Supper reminds us the church is a community of restoration, of making the broken whole. It is a community of reconciliation, of being forgiven and forgiving one another. And fourth, that the church is a holy community. Whenever we celebrate a baptism or observe the Lord's Supper, these these remembrances, they remind us of our story, of the story, the story of the gospel, the story of redemption from sin, the story of death, into resurrection, it reminds us that we are a redeemed, a restored and reconciled people. It reminds us that we are called to be a holy people, set apart from the world so that we can go into the world and serve it in the name of Jesus Christ. To make disciples, to baptize in them the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that Christ commands us. We are to feed others and bring healing to others. We are reconciled with God so we can help others still lost in their sin know that same reconciliation. This is why Paul commanded the Corinthians to examine themselves. And we should examine ourselves, not just before we take the Lord's Supper, every day. We should examine ourselves. Where do I stand with God? How am I following in the footsteps of Jesus today? Is there a sin in my life I need to confess and ask God to help me work on? Is there a blind spot I need to ask Him to reveal to me? Perhaps this morning, as you examine yourself, you're thinking about the the first half of this sermon. Maybe you've been baptized, but you have since realized. Maybe you were baptized as a child. Maybe you were baptized because your brother or sister were, or your friends were, and you thought, well, I want to do that too, and... Since then, you've come to realize that you really were not a Christian when you were baptized. And you have since then come to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You still need to experience believer's baptism. Because that means you're baptized after you have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you were baptized in a church where you were baptized as an infant. 
and you've been worshiping here, you've been coming here, and you feel God drawing you, you're not with this church family, and you want to say, David, I want to come and join this church, and that means I need to be baptized. Maybe you were not baptized by immersion, and you say, David, I want to come and be baptized in the biblical way to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized and join this church. Or maybe you have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, even right now, is speaking to you. And you've got this, this gnawing in your, in your stomach telling you, you need to come and settle once and for all where you stand with Jesus. I invite you to come right now. Put your faith and trust in Him. Maybe God is speaking to you in some other way. Maybe you've got some bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart towards someone. You come and just pray at this altar. We're not going to participate in the Lord's Supper today. But nonetheless, maybe God is telling you, you need to come and deal with me and leave this at the altar so that you can go out and be not just reconciled, but a reconciler. Let's stand together. Let's pray together and let's respond as God's Holy Spirit leads each and every one of us today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gifts of baptism and the Lord's Supper, Father. They are not legalistic things that we have to do to be saved. They are gifts. They are beautiful ways in which we can tell other people and remind ourselves of the gospel story. And I pray, God, that you would help us whenever we participate in them or we see someone be baptized, Lord, that, that we would remember this and draw more meaning from it and use these as opportunities to grow closer to you, deeper in our faith, and to proclaim the gospel to those who most need to hear it. Father, whatever you're speaking in people's hearts and lives today, may they be obedient to your voice and come. In Jesus' name we pray.